Welcome back to the Line Podcast. My name is Aaron Alexander. This is a place that we bring together the world's leading experts in all things health and wellness to help you optimize your mind and your body and your movement. And today's conversation was with my good buddy, Stephen Kotler. Mr. Kotler is absolutely one of the most prolific and renowned writers on planet Earth. He's on his, I believe it's his 13th book, The Art of Impossible, which just came out and I just finished reading it. A really fantastic book. He's done 13 published, a bunch of New York Times bestsellers, all of our bestsellers of some variety. He said he's got a couple other books in the drawer that no one's ever going to see. He is a absolute machine when it comes to journalism, research, and being just very thorough with a whole plethora of different topics and being able to congeal those seemingly disparate ideas into meaningful information for us to consume. And that is what we get into in this conversation, The Art of Impossible, how we can pursue seemingly impossible dreams and the action steps on how to make that happen. That's not the subtitle, but that is what I just produced as the pseudo subtitle for this podcast. The conversation was super fun. I think you guys are going to enjoy it. We're going to have another one with him coming up because we recorded this before I actually got to read the book. And uh, now got the book in my hands, my cold grasps here. It's kind of cold here in Los Angeles. And uh, we're going to do another one. So you guys are going to get to tune into that one coming up. I think you guys will really enjoy this conversation. Thank you so much for sharing it. Thanks for doing you. Thanks for reviews on the Spotify's or iTunes or whatever you do. And I just appreciate you guys tuning in. Here we go. Back to the scheduled programming with my guy, Stephen Kotler. Pow. Sometimes you got to record in front of a church. That's going to be my new thing. Well, <laughs> let me know. I mean, if the big guy answers, maybe it's like the real thing. Maybe the whole problem we've been having all along is that we've been just like, a, we've been trying from the inside. Maybe, oh. maybe God likes it outside more. You know what I mean? I'm just saying. I do know what you mean. I mean, he made our eyes and skin and all of the sensory receptors respond to the outsides. This is, I think we're following in the Lord's path right now by recording outside a church. So I'm staying in Pennsylvania right now and I'm at my dad's place and his, he just married uh, a woman, my stepmom, and she owns a third of the church and they like reconverted it into being like a condo type place. It's very interesting. So it's the first time I've ever slept in church and I'm here and we're together and this is us. <laughs> Right, you're seeing restraint. This is not something most I would be are used to seeing. I know. What are your religious beliefs? Can we talk about that? So, uh, my parents are Jewish, and I was raised in a very a traditional religious household. And very early, four or five, my mother was saying the prayer of the Shabbos candles. This is so much to come. Like my parents should have known. They should have, like kicked me to the curb right here. They should yep. have just known that everything that comes next is just, it's just going to get worse. Yeah. But hindsight is twenty twenty, and I, she was saying the blessing, the prayer over the candles. I remember I stopped her and I said, well, "What are you saying?" And she told me, you know, she translated it out of Hebrew, and I sort of knew what the translation. I was like, "Well, why are you saying this?" And she said, "Well, because my parents said it." And I was like, "Well, why did they say this? It? Their parents." I I was trying to understand tradition. I was getting beat up and having problems at school because I was Jewish. I was dealing with anti-Semitism already sort of in the real world a little bit. And I was very confused because Jews post the Holocaust, it was very much like a people and a tribe. And yet it was a set of beliefs about a, a dude is supposed to live in the sky. I was like, well, are we a culture or are we a religion? And I, you know, when you're four and five years old trying to figure out like, what is a belief system and what is a culture and like what all these things, it turns out actually Jews are, are both the only religion. There's a string of junk DNA in your Dean code. If you're Jewish, that means you are Jewish. So it, it turns out, unlike most other religions, which are just operating systems for faith, Judaism is actually like 10,000 years of, of essentially inbreeding. We got some code. You're in it. You got um, the gene key. Yeah, so it was actually the, the truth of the matter, genetically and scientifically, was I was sort of right at age four or five. Like I was confused by things that were real and there was science there later on. But no, I could not, from a very early age, I could not understand the wisdom in following advice from people who lived thousands of years ago in a very different world. Even to my young, it was very problematic 
I did not understand the whole like sky dad concept did not work for me very early on. Especially when you're in your, your bedroom whacking off. That's what it's yeah, the worst. It's, it's, sky it's, dad's the worst. I, just, like, I was like, there's a dude up there who watches everything I do. And like, he's writing. He's a pedophile. I don't believe it's Santa Claus keeping the list. It was very, very confusing. And the greatest thing in the world is for me was that I didn't fit comfortably into this thing called religion. I had lots of questions because those questions led me, helped me, helped lead me to exactly where I needed to go. And my parents were just selling it wrong, by the way. Let's talk about this. If they would have come and been like, look, dude, you were the member of this ancient warrior people. People have been trying to kill us for 10,000 years, but we're so tough and we're so smart. We keep surviving. Right. Like if they could have pitched it any possible way. Right. Like you could have sold it. I was four. You could have told me anything like any propaganda or, you know, something close to the truth, which is that you're a descendant from a 10,000 year old warrior people and people have been trying to kill you for 10,000 years. You're a tiny fraction of the population that has made over 10,000 years an outside contribution to culture and thinking and, and all this stuff. And yet everybody keeps trying to kill you. That's who you are. I would have been like, fuck yeah, I'm the underdog. So I wonder with you how much of a debt of gratitude you owe being raised in a dogmatic reality to start to draw out the necessity to ask deeper questions. And now that's a big part of who you are. And I've never had this conversation out loud, but I've thought about this a lot lately. And I think, yes, that is true. Everything you did said is true. And it did. It was great. It's absolutely to push against. Yeah, exactly. Without bad people, there's no good people. It's like, how could I pat myself on the back unless I don't like them? Capital S spite will eat you alive. It's the worst motivator in the world, which is why like, it's a really bad idea to train, say, football players to run on anger all the time. It's a dangerous fuel. It doesn't work as a long-term motivator. It's got long consequences outside the blah, 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 but small less spite, like bulletin board material, right? I'm a big believer in that. Like there's a fortune cookie taped to our refrigerator that my wife put up years ago that says, I get great pleasure from proving people wrong. Yeah. And she's like, I, nobody has more fun doing that than I do. Right. Yeah. I love that particular one. So small less spite, I think is a very powerful motivator that said, and I got a lot of that out of that, but I like, I, whether or not this is, Judaism or my parents just being really great parents, I was raised with a deep appreciation for intellectual curiosity. Wherever my brain wanted to go, my parents, like we wouldn't have a lot of money when I was younger, but within like whatever little we can afford, like wherever my brain wanted to go, you know what I mean? When it was dinosaurs, my mom found the class down at the Cleveland Museum of Natural History that was cheap. That meant she had to drive an hour and a half every Saturday morning to drop me there and pick me up. And like that stuff was totally made available to me by my parents, which was spectacular. And it didn't matter what direction I went in with that. So I like I got tremendous amount of creativity, that sort of thing. In other places, it was an awesome combination of having something to push against, but also like that great Midwestern upbringing where you're taught to like work hard don't lie, value intellectual knowledge. I was gifted by my parents and Midwestern culture that I was surrounded by some of the world's greatest values and work ethics for peak performance. If that's your interest, peak performance is always easier if you are very honest and have a really rigorous truth filter because it's a level playing field in a sense. I remember giving a speech in Italy once. After the speech, I, I was at its sort of a, a luncheon that was it was most of the Italian government. It was a heavyweight room. And they wanted to know how to do innovation in Italy. And like there were guys who were nearly in tears. We've got this amazing culture that is built to conserve the past and conserve tradition. And we're great at it. But we're getting killed in the modern world. And we have no idea how to innovate culturally. And you know, and I was like, dude, I don't do cultural change. Like that's I do, like I try to stay in my lane. My lane is like human peak performance and disruptive technology, and I can sort of help you here, but I feel for you. And I don't think like, you know, there there have been people I've worked with over the years who are in it for the cultural change. They think that's, and I think it's nonsense. I think culture is a complex system and saying, oh, you can pull this lever and change. Like that's nothing is more arrogant to me. And I've had to walk away from certain business relationships, things like that, because among other things, that was one of the things that was just like, I don't, I'm in my lane, man. I do do the neurobiology of peak performance. I do dogs and I do 
skiing, writing, and a couple other things. And I just yeah. try to, you know. I wonder your perception on can you change a child's direction based off of parenting or are they more like a Polaroid picture and they come out and you just shake it and whatever you do, it's like. So A, there's very little support on the blank slate theory. Like there's 50% genetic and 50% personality. Which 50% is which 50%? And what do we mean by personality once it's locked down? Other than that, the only thing that I feel like I have any ground to stand on when I have my mouth about children is to talk about flow and education. And I can only yeah. really tell you what the data says. Yeah. Right? A lot of work has been, in fact, there's a new textbook. She said, me, I just put a new textbook out on flow and education. There's so much work that's been done that we can now put it all in textbook. We can talk about that and what I, what I know that way. But I think everything else is, is it's ridiculous. I mean, I've got no actual experience whatsoever disregard that that was more just like we're at a bar you know and we just took a shot like what do you think can you make a difference but something that's more in relation to like flow and religion so conflating the two lines into something that comes back and more into your wheelhouse i think a lot of religion and a lot of the practices that are expressed throughout various different dogmas such as like in muslim religion, for example, having like the five prayers throughout the day and you get up and, you know, you face the East, I believe, and you stop your work and you go and you squat down and you bring your head down to the ground. And like, you take yourself through this mantra, chanting, exhalation, relaxing your vision, going through full range of motion with your ankles and your hips. And if you integrate that into your daily life, it's essentially, you're like, you're giving like pill form flow five times a day integrating that into the culture as a whole could also say Aaron that's ridiculous what are you saying but I I wonder if there is some like inadvertent kind of flow from certain religious practices so I'm going to speak less about specifically about Islam because I think that's very individual right there are clearly Muslims who have the breathing down have the prayer down are have done all the sort of flow trance work so you can do that very, very, very quickly. When I think about daily prayer, Islam's a very beautiful religion. It's a non-religious yeah. God, right? Very pretty religion. There's a lot in there that, that, that's really beautiful. And when I think about that, I think, wow, what amazing grit training. Like what astounding daily grit training that yep. is. So you are probably right. For certain people, right, it's definitely this, but for everybody, it's grit training at a, like, at a really serious level. I mean, Think about, I'm not quite sure how long that prayer lasts. It's five minutes. I've done it. I've gone to the church before and, and done it in Morocco. And so, technically yeah, I wasn't, I had to be invited in as a whole thing. So it's 25 minutes total a day. Yeah, yeah. I can make monumental changes in your life. If you give me 25 minutes a day, if you can be consistent 25 minutes a day at a handful of different things, like I'd like to do more and I'd like to write, but. Seriously, like 25 minutes a day, you could make some pretty significant changes. And if you've already got that discipline of doing it, it's going to be a little bit easier, I, I would guess. But I want to go to a meta point that's more important that like off of what you said, because I think it's much cooler. Miha Csikszentmihalyi, the godfather of flow psychology, pointed this out in, uh, it's in most of his books, but it's in flow. It's in, it's actually even in, in the first textbook on flow. And this was back, he's been arguing this since the 50s or 60s which is, by the way, one of the reasons I think Csikszentmihalyi should also be considered a philosopher and not just a psychologist, because I think he's a great philosophical thinker. But he has said, look, pretty much everything you call culture is a flow-generating engine, Hmm. whether it's music or art or dance or religion or sport, right? Like most of what we call culture is flow-generating engines one way or another. I think... You could make two arguments. Uh, the argument in Art of Impossible is it's because innovation is the direct result of flow and innovation is a nonviolent response to scarcity in a sense, right? Like that's the, the, the core argument at the center of Art of Impossible is we're all wired to go big. We're all wired to kind of tackle high, hard goals and impossible challenges. And one of the reasons is evolution designed humans to respond to the threat of scarcity. So there's only two options when you're faced with scarcity. One is you can compete, fight or flee over dwindling resources, or you can get cooperative, get creative, get innovative and make new resources. So 
I tend to think that as a species, we're very wired for the make new resources, the innovate our way out of problems challenge. And I think one of the reasons you see so much overlap between flow and culture and like, why would you make an autotelic experience and end in itself, like the most addictive experience on earth, super supportive? Why would evolution of all these innovation processes, it's because innovation drives is one solution to scarcity and evolution has been shaped by this force. So we're sort of built for that. And I think flow is one of the responses to that, which is why you see so much culture designed as sort of like flow generation engines. It seems like music and art just to like be granular around those, those two directions. That seems to me almost like healing mechanisms or tuning mechanisms for the human organism. I think the oldest instrument was a cave bear's femur and it was a i think it's called like the djevbe flute something like that and it's like forty-three thousand years ago you know so there's this puncher gatherer what have you out there and they're like surviving and they're in a cave whittling away a femur in order to like blow music into it's like ancestrally biologically like i wonder what the origin of that and it seems like it's there's there's some type of healing mechanism there probably i would imagine or perhaps it's just for the sake of evolution. Yeah, well, know. you know, how something slipped in, like flow, everybody's really certain humans evolved to run down their prey, right? We can run longer distances than any other species on Earth, and that's what we're designed to do. The general thinking is that flow originally emerged as pain relief during distance uh. running. Right? It was not endorphins, it was nandamide, which appeared, right? The same psychoactive in marijuana, it's an endocannabinoid in our body. We get endocannabinoids every time we encounter stress, right? So it's, this is the first layer. When you've encountered the first wave of runner's high, it's always an anamide. And the endocannabinoid system is extremely old, you know, long before humans kind of thing. So we think that's where it started. You know, there's a couple of like great leap forward theories about flow. One of which I sort of like argued for in a small furry prayer, which is that our cohabitation with animals and our need to communicate across species lines and the advantages we got from teaming up with wolves, which already drove human evolution much farther and forward. You know, when we teamed up with wolves, it was great. They were our babysitters. They barked at danger. They cleaned up our garbage piles and they helped us hunt, right? And when you're trying to track large game, I don't know if you ever run with a big pack of dogs, you trip all over each other until you drop the flow together. And then it's like perfect. Everybody's spaced and knows what to do and you don't. If you go back to a time where like pre-antibiotics where you can't like get gored by a buffalo or you're going to like, if they nick your arm, you're going to die of gangrene, right? Like you forget about it. So you need perfect group coordination. You're cross species. We know we co-evolved with wolves. We know we're hunting with them. And we know that flow massively amplifies pattern recognition and nonverbal communication because of what it does to perception and, and all that kind of stuff. So there's some people, myself included, who think, Hey, it was this cohabitation with wolves and the need to pack, hunt, and communicate as a group across species lines. Because if you get slightly more meat, right? If you're in flow and you, your group with wolves communicates better than the other group and you're in flow and they're not, and that's the advantage, you're going to get more meat and you're going to have less injuries. Those are both big evolutionary drivers, like more food, better health. That's what drives evolution forward over time. So there's a lot of really good evidence for this. But with evolution, we always talk about just so stories. You know what I mean? Like there's enough molecular ideas underneath what I'm saying that you probably could start to look for them and test them. I'm not a geneticist, so it's not work I could do. But you could probably start to piece this out if you were interested enough, I think. I want to take a brief moment and discuss a simple way that we can enhance the absorption of hydration. So when you're drinking water, oftentimes, especially if you're drinking filtered water, you are going to be taking out all of the vital minerals that would naturally manifest in that water from, say, if you drank it out of a spring. Something that you can do to enhance the absorption of that water would be to add a little bit of uh, minerals. So you could add some salt or you could add some of what has become my favorite water enhancement product product. 
which is a funny term uh, that I made up. I promise they don't use that in their advertising, but I put it in my water before workout, after workout, just throughout the day. It makes water taste more delicious, and they've got a whole variety of delicious flavors, like legit. I really love the taste of this stuff. Each packet contains uh, 1,000 milligrams of sodium, 200 milligrams of potassium, 60 milligrams of magnesium, all of which are immensely valuable for the function of your nervous system, the function of your sleeping patterns, your energy levels, and also the absorption of your water. So we got a great deal from the guys over at Element to give y'all a free sampler pack. So if you go over to drinklmnt.com slash align, that's D-R-I-N-K-L-M-N-T.com slash align, A-L-I-G-N, you get yourself a free sampler pack. You just pay, I think it's five bucks for shipping, and they'll send you out a little booster pack to get started. And if you love it, you grab some more. And if you do grab some more and you're not just completely infatuated with the stuff, they'll give you your money back. No questions asked. No big deal. These guys are great. I really trust them and really appreciate them. And I think you guys will as well. So jump over to drinklmnt.com slash I did an interview with a guy called Stanley Krippner a while back and he's he's like a, a famous psychologist fellow and he was talking about slash he's in like shamanism and psychedelics and um all of those things and he was talking about the hypnotic ability but to be able to be easily hypnotized into the belief of healing was that would be a, a trait that would cause success or, or continue evolution so if you had high hypnotic ability then that would be able to put an individual into a place of being able to activate their own self-healing mechanisms more than a person that was, you know, it was, they didn't have that ability to kind of tune in. You, you know, like bringing up shaman with me goes no place. And it started I with church that we go into shamanism. Yeah, perfect. I like, like I, so there's a billion of the questions. Well, placebo be coming back in like a clinically researched thing where it's like with 50% success not, it's going to have not, impact yeah so I, it's I, accessing I, that belief system like wow that pill was really great it's like well it was just sugar but you believed you know so that that's more what i'm referring to in, in the sense of hypnotic we, ability you're hypnotized by the placebo the reason i paused on the shaman stuff was not just like there's another yeah whatever. i appreciate the pause because i was going into like the, the weeds I and i, I appreciate that, that. I, I got <laughs> anyways no but my point is that like what you were saying what i was what i was going to agree with this was the word front, which is I don't know if it'd be evolutionarily good. So that's a separate story. But like what he would call healing, like, are we sure we're not like susceptibility to trance flow? We may be talking about the ability to shift out of your prefrontal cortex. Yeah. Which could like, there's certain evolutionary advantage. That'd be like, you know, being very flow prone. That could be an evolutionary advantage. But again, flow is, you know, it's a tool. You don't want to do long-term planning and flow. The part of your brain that literally does long-term planning is turned off, right? Risk tolerances are through the roof and long-term planning is shut down, yeah. which is why, like I always say, you know, any of the, the self-help new age people who put customers into flow states, clients into flow states and then sell them stuff. Here, come firewalk and then buy my work. Right. Right? As far as I'm concerned, that's criminal. I mean, like literally like that's cult behavior. I'm changing your consciousness. I'm shutting the part on the part of your brain that does long-term planning can wow. think strategically about money and can assess risk. And then I'm trying to sell you something. That's, That's pretty interesting. Wrong. When you put it that way and you're like, hey, this is what the technology is doing. I mean, that, by the way, when you go to church and you pray and they do that and they pass around the complexion plate, same thing is happening, right? Yeah. And so, you, you, you know, with church, at least you can go, oh, well, at least yeah, you're putting me in a, in a trance state. Long-term planning is shut down. Christ is up. But we're going to use this to feed the community. Yeah. Okay. Like, yeah, you're conning me, but you're conning me for good. If I'm lining the pastor's pocket, we got a problem. But if you're conning me for the greater good, I'm willing to go along with your con. Yeah. Good. The new age self-help world. You know what I mean? And I see it like, like there was a guy I, I knew he loved my work and he wanted to incorporate with his work. And I was like, well, what is your work? He's like, well, I, I do this really aggressive thing with, with males who have gone through really bad breakups and I, I build them back up. We take them to the boxer ring. I punch them in the face. I was like, what? Like, you, what are you t- like? Huh? Are you shut up? Like, <laughs> and, and then you try to sell them more courses, but it's the same thing. Like if I put you in a boxing ring and I like punch you in the face and I put you in that dopamine driven 
You know what I mean? It's the same thing. Like that's a, a state changing technology that can, whether or not, like I always say, like, you know, personality doesn't scale and what works for me isn't going to work for you. Yeah. Right? Like if I was training people, if art of impossible, which is everything I've ever learned about peak performance, right? And we, I say in the first chapter, personality doesn't scale, biology scales. And I was, I, the joke I always make to people is like, look, if personality scaled, and I was teaching you what worked for me. We'd all be generating flow because by skiing through the mountains at 50 miles an hour on our own, very far away through the trees, listening to the Wu-Tang Clan at top volume, probably stoned, right? Like, cause that's what I do to get out of my head. And, and you know, like that's my go-to drop in kind of thing. Yeah. I don't expect it to work for anybody else in the world, but me, I would never train anybody up in that. I think that's a stupid idea. I think yeah. that's a lie. And what's worse by that is when people are like, they're gussing up what works for them as a personality thing and putting people in all three states of consciousness. So they're not even noticing what's going on. I have a problem with it. I find it ethically difficult. Yeah. So what is the, what is separates the art of impossible from you have how many books? You have like nine, nine books, 13, book. 13 books. So what I want to ask, so what differentiates the art of impossible from, um, yeah, from, so, from the rest? Like what's, cause you, at this point you've put so you've brain dumped so much and collaborated so much and said so much. And, and, you know, so what is, where is this? So the art of impossible first, there's three things that separate this book from everything I've ever done. One, I'm most known for flow, though, obviously I work on peak human performance, but this, when I started writing this book, I was going to call it everything but the flow. I wasn't going to call it that, but the subtitle was going to be everything but the flow. And the reason was flow is a key component of peak performance and you will not get anywhere if you can't dial it in, but it's not the peak performance suite at all. And all these other books were coming out, power of habit, attention, power, positive thinking, gratitude, mindfulness, even flow, right? And the truth of the matter is it's actually a whole suite. And if you follow the biology the biological system is designed to work in an order in a specific sequence with flow as a part of it. So I wanted to tell the full big picture. It's also the first time I ever wrote a how-to. Rise of Superman is a book about flow and action sports and how people were using flow to, to tackle incredible things. But it's not really a how-to book. Mm -hmm. Steel Fire isn't at all a how-to book. West of Jesus, which is my other book on, on flow, is nowhere close and or or actually a small furry prayer which is a book about animals and humans and the evolution of flow again nothing how to in there so this is 30 years of studying the neuroscience and psychology of peak human performance and training people you know we train at the flow research collective these days we train about a thousand people a month and i don't know how many people i've trained over the years but it like millions at this point i would guess so I've got a vast amount of knowledge about what works, what doesn't, why, and, and et cetera, et cetera. And it's okay. never really appeared in print before. So that Art of Boswell is the full big picture. It is like, it is literally, if you're interested in tackling, living up to your potential, tackling bigger challenges, stepping up, this is A to Z. It's every single thing you need to know about cognitive high performance. There's physical performance, a lot of the work you're doing in the world, things like that, that's not where this book goes. This is cognitive high performance, but it's the full look at cognitive high performance. And it, it's divided into four sections, motivation, learning, creativity, and flow. These are categories. By motivation, we're talking drive, which is intrinsic motivation, and, and the full stack, curiosity, passion, purpose, autonomy, mastery. These are our big five intrinsic motivators. Also goal setting, there's three tiers to goal setting and six layers to grit. All that fits under motivation. So these are catch-all terms. But basically, let me sort of back into why those skills, two reasons. One, motivation, learning, and creativity are the things that flow amplifies the most. Hmm. Those are the skills that get amplified the most in flow. After decades of training people in flow, what I started to realize is I can take anybody off the street, put them through one of my trainings, we measure flow pre and post, for example, at Zero to Dangerous, our regular flow training. And we're using the best psychometrics available. We see a 70 80% increase in flow on the back end. Flow is remarkably easy to train. If you understand the neuroscience and you work back 
you've got it. And most people can get very, very, very dangerous, very, very quickly, very good at it. The problem is there's a spectacular return to baseline in most people. And I couldn't figure it out. I'd notice certain people, everybody was sore and then a bunch of people were crashing. And I started to realize that the peak performers, like the Navy SEALs or the professional athletes or the CEOs weren't coming back down to earth. They were just going. And I was like, well, what the heck is going on? And I started to realize the simple example is this. If you're driving a car, it's doing 10 miles an hour and you hit a tree and you dent the fender, no big deal. But if you're doing 100 miles an hour and you hit a tree, you've got a big problem. That's what was happening with flow. We were speeding people up. It was massively amplifying all their flow skills, but also their motivation, their learning and creativity. But if they haven't actually developed the skills properly and in the right sequence and they really weren't stacked, you can't sustain it. But if you understand how these things work, how they work together, and how to develop, co-develop them and how to use them together, then you have an incredibly stable platform and you can go anywhere you really want to go. Does that make sense? Kind of. What's the specifics? What were people missing? So let me give you a really easy place to start. Intrinsic motivation, which is where performance should always start. The way the human system is sort of designed to work, we're designed to take curiosity And when we can find the intersections of multiple curiosities, that's passion. Curiosity is the building blocks of passion. When we have the intersections of multiple curiosities, we then, if we can attach that to a cause greater than ourselves, now we've got purpose. Once we have a purpose, we need the autonomy to pursue that purpose. And then once we have the autonomy to pursue it, we need the mastery, the skills to pursue that purpose. Most people understand these are five intrinsic motivators, and it'd be really good to tap into all of them and might be useful and blah, blah, blah. What most people don't realize is there's an order. There's a sequence. We're designed to go from curiosity into passion, into purpose, into autonomy, into mastery. And we have really good information on how to do this. If you go to the passionrecipe.com, like I wrote it up as an article for uh, Forbes. This is in the Art of Impossible, but I'm giving it away for anybody who wants to get it for free, this stack, how to do this. But they're designed to work in order. And they're all, all of these things, curiosity, passion, they're all flow triggers, by the way. Flow follows focus. So anything that drives our attention more into the present moment amplifies flow. When you work in this stack, you're not only aligning all your intrinsic motivators, you're also getting flow for free. Why is this such a big deal? If you know anything about human performance, you know there are only a handful of really big levers. You've got focus and attention. You've got habit. You've got a couple other things. Motivation gives you focus for free. The brain uses most of our energy. It weighs very little, but it uses most of our energy. And most of that energy is spent on driving our attention, driving our focus. If we can get focus for free, that's you. That's the ball game in a sense. And that's what intrinsic motivators give us. And the intrinsic motivators that we have are literally biologically designed, neurobiologically designed to work in this sequence in this way. And when you use them properly, not only do you get way more motivation, way more clarity and focus and drive and all that stuff that you want, the end result is you get way more flow because you're doing it right. So the system rewards you with flow, literally to cement that new behavior in. Mm. And once you have that stack, then you need three tiers of goal setting. The first level of goals any life needs is a, is a mission statement goals. What Peter Humanis myself dubbed the massively transformative purpose. What's the mission statement for your life? Then right. you need your high hard goals, right? Which are all the shit that is going to support the mission statement. And then your clear goals. What are you going to do today? Blah, blah. And there's a proper way to do this. All of which are motivating, done wrong, really, really demotivating. Right, you can. There's wrong ways to do this. Also, if you sort of try to like move beyond the biology, so you see this with goal setting. You see this a lot uh, in some of the new age, more spiritual communities. They they'll do all kinds of vi- visualize your perfect life in all these ways, and like vision boards about the dream house you want, and all, and use these kinds of affirmations. And actually, when you understand human biology and how the goal system is designed to work, some of that is great. And some of it is actually the most demotivating thing ever. Affirmations can be horrific. What specifically would make it demotivating? So your brain has a phenomenal bullshit detector built in. We all come with it, Mm -hmm. right? Cannot lie to yourself. 
So if you work at Walmart and you look in the mirror every morning and go, I am a millionaire, I'm a millionaire, I'm a millionaire, which is what almost any of the new age spiritual community stuff will tell you to do. Your brain is going to go, pardon my language, fuck you, you're not. And you're going to lose motivation. Motivation meaning dopamine and norepinephrine. You get up and go. You're going to rob yourself of the fuel you need to go forward. That's why gratitude works and affirmations don't. Gratitude works because you're thanking the world for stuff that already exists. Like when I wake up and go, I'm so happy and grateful. I got out of bed and my limbs work and I'm awake. My brain doesn't go, well, bullshit, right? It goes, oh, well, that's true. Maybe you're a little safer. Maybe I should calm down a little bit, right? It tunes the nervous system a little bit. And we can go into what a gratitude practice does in the brain and things along those lines if you want to. And I know gratitude is something you cover in in, in your book. Yeah, yeah. I want to take a quick moment and discuss one of the most vital decisions that we can make for our immune system, for our energy levels, for our sleep, for our overall well-being, which is to invest in our internal gut bugs, our microbiome, also the biome on our skin, you know, all of the bugs that uh, exist within the ecosystem of your human experience are immensely valuable and we got to treat them right. So we teamed up with our friends over at Bio Optimizers to get y'all some gut guardian at a discount to support those bugs. So they've got all the prebiotic fibers and the probiotic fibers and all the things that you need. It's the perfect cocktail concoction of probiotics for you to support the good bugs and also weed out the bad bug. With that literally translates to is you feeling better. So a vast chunk of your neurochemistry is produced within your gut. So serotonin, dopamine, a lot of that stuff is produced in your gut. I'm sure you guys have heard that before in various different places, including here. And uh, it's a really important factor to start to introduce into your daily healthcare. So jump over to biooptimizers.com slash align. That's B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S.com slash align. Biooptimizers.com slash align. And get yourself a cool 10% off on actually any purchase, but I highly recommend trying out the Gut Guardian. If you don't absolutely love it, they will give you 100% money back guarantee. So you got nothing to lose. All of your bugs that exist within you will be very grateful for you to support them from the outside. Alrighty, that is it. That is all. Thank you for supporting your gut bugs. And uh, let's get back to the podcast. It's interesting as you're talking, it's reminding me of like a little kid. If you had a child and you got him, you know, a, a play house tool set, whatever thing. And he was like, cool, whatever. I want a bigger one. You'd be like, fuck you. <laughs> like, you didn't, you weren't grateful for what you had. And so it seems almost like your subconscious okay. works in a similar way where it's like, we can't lie to ourselves. So I talked about in the surprise of Superman, Art Impossible, also the banister effect, right? Like human beings right. have to believe the impossible is possible where you have to believe you're capable of, of, of accomplishing a, a high hard goal before you can actually accomplish it. That has to do with how the brain filters reality based on our belief systems, right? You're talking about really early things like thalamic gating and like things that are long before your conscious mind can even intervene. You know what I mean? Like it's, it's yeah. filtered perception at that level. But there's a right way to do it, sort of a wrong way to do it. I mean, like we know from motivation science, proper goal setting just at the high hard goal level will give you an 11 to 25% boost in performance. Mm. Like if an eight hour day is your baseline, you can get a 25% boost in performance by having the proper goals set around your day. You're an idiot to not, like, why would you never do that? Like, it doesn't even make sense. I get two free hours of work out of my day because I've got the right goal, that kind of stuff. You know, I, I always say that like peak performance, I don't think is anything more than getting our biology to work for us rather than against us. Yeah. Not a new idea, right? I mean, like William James said nearly the same thing a hundred years ago, but anyways, our impossible is the big picture, right? And it's what does it take to shatter our limitations, exceed our expectations, and turn our biggest dreams into our most recent achievements? And when I say what I mean, I mean, what do I mean step by step by step? It's a practical playbook for peak performance or extreme innovation or however you want to phrase it. I don't think anybody's ever written anything quite like it. I'm excited. I love that. Another analogy that's popping up is like you need to put fuel, you need to put logs into the fire, 
before you get you actually get the fire like instead of looking into the fireplace like waiting for waiting for fire like you actually have to invest in the fire to start yeah, with as opposed yeah, to just always being in a wanting place let me give you a great simple example yeah. so everybody wants more creativity number one skill for the 21st century the most important skill our kids can have most important skill for a ceo like depending on who study you go after we and we come bonus Every neuron at a foundational level does pattern recognition, right? The basis of creativity is literally built into the, baked into how neurons work. And yet, if you don't properly feed your pattern recognition system raw data on a sort of daily basis, your brain can't be creative. Like it's got no fuel. Like you can want all the creativity in the world and try to do all the creative problems. But if you're not, and it's really not hard, it doesn't take a long time but you have to know when to do it and why to do it and how to do it and how it works. And think another thing we sort of talked about in the book is, is how do we feed and care for our built-in pattern recognition system to maintain that creativity. You know, I, I always look at this, this stack. I like to say, we talk about this a little bit in Art Impossible. It's a little poetic and I apologize for that, but uh, peak performance is an infinite game. The difference between a finite and an infinite game is finite games have winners and losers and clearly defined rules. Infinite game the goal is just to keep on playing. There's no winners. There's no losers. There's no clearly defined rules. I've always said that peak performance is a funny infinite game because you can't win, but you can definitely lose. You can definitely lose the game of peak performance, right? Like you cannot live up to your own expectations. Mm-hmm. And that's what it means to lose the game of peak performance. To win the game of peak performance, you just have to keep trying to exceed your own expectations for yourself. In a sense, it's an infinite game that way. And the way I like to think about the skills of the heart of art and possible, motivation gets you into that game. Learning is what allows you to continue to play. And creativity is how you steer. And flow is how you turbo boost the whole goddamn thing beyond any reasonable set of expectations. That's literally the entire peak performance suite. That's the biology that we're designed to use. And everything else sort of fits inside that framework. Because that's the framework that sort of evolution gave us. When you say pattern recognition, I immediately am thinking like pattern recognition of like the movement of a body and facial gestures and all that stuff. When you say pattern recognition, you mean something else, right? When I say the brain does pattern recognition, uh, like it's really at a, at a brain level, it's really basic. Like think about like rods and cones, both of them, they're built to recognize certain frequencies of light. What you have to understand is like, that's a sensor. It's a literally, it's a rod it comes out and the light comes in. And if this part lines up, everything else that's my fist besides what's touching my finger just passes on by. But that's like, when I say pattern recognition, I mean like the system is biologically designed to encounter a certain kind of pattern in the world and it recognizes. It's really mechanistic. And yeah, sure. When we recognize his faces, right? That's pattern recognition. That's what we're doing. It's technically defined as the ability to link like with like. That's all we mean by pattern recognition. It's, oh, this is like this, this is like this. We And the brain does this at every, at every level. That's what brains do is their pattern recognition engines. That's sort of how they work, right? The brain is trying to predict the future. In every moment, the brain is trying to predict how much energy are you going to need to achieve your goals in the next instant and in the next instant and the next instant. That's what the brain does it is constantly making those predictions it is making those predictions through pattern recognition. And how would one feed their own pattern recognition? So this is really simple. When I say this is A to Z, like there's a chapter on learning and it starts with what are the best sources to learn from? How do you do that? The argument is made for books. And so what I tell people is in the modern world, our problem for pattern recognition, for creativity is we specialize. When you specialize, if you're all you're doing is reading and studying and learning about your discipline, right? If all you were doing was reading and studying and learning about movement and embodied cognition in a sense, that's not enough information to link really far-flung things together, which is sort of the birth of creativity. So what I tell people is if you read 25 pages a day in a nonfiction book outside your specialty, that is enough to feed the pattern recognition system. You, sometimes you can read fiction, but what doesn't work is like thriller stuff and mer- like it can't be just engrossing and, and for the fun of it. It's got to be have some information and some meat. 
So your brain has stuff to chew on, but find something you're curious about that's loosely, tangentially, maybe not even related to what you do in the world. Try to read 25 pages a day. So when I'm doing my active recovery protocol, I like to go into a sauna. I use a dry infrared sauna every day. I spend the first half hour reading 25 pages and I spend the second 10, 15 minutes doing my breath work protocol. And that's my active recovery stack every day. And thus I fed my pattern recognition system. So I've created raw conditions for creativity and thus flow. I've also gotten an active recovery thing in there. And I've got, you know, my mindfulness breath work practice for all the benefit that it brings on every level. It's a tight stack that fits really nicely together. I'm not telling people to do what I do, but that's how I deploy it in my life. I can guarantee you, by the way, probably don't do what I do because what works for me is probably not going to work for you. Figure out what works for you. But 25 pages, again, that's, this is a number that works for me really, really well. You, we have to feed our pattern recognition system on a daily basis. I have done enough work with people over the years that using this 25 page number to tell you this really works for people. Obviously, you could go over it. You may be wired to go under it. Or, you know, there are days when I'm reading like a neuroscience textbook where 25 pages could literally be like three hours worth of work. Right. And I'm going to get like seven pages of textbook read or whatever. And so you got to use your sort of common sense on that one. But that's a simple example. I was going through your your website. One of the parts that I got out of there was it was talking about suggesting that you had lost your mind to some capacity in all the books that you've wrote and and the, the, the value in frustration being a crucial step in the creativity process. One, do you still align with that? Because that was probably written a few years ago to did that happen in the experience of this and if so what did that look like and <laughs> yeah yeah so um <laughs> I, so I, what you're referencing i think um i don't know where it is on the website but it was in so norman mailer the great american writer novelist once said every one of my books has killed me a little bit more yeah and i think that's like any great creative project multi-year creative project i don't care what it is it's going to feed you but it's going to kill you a little bit more. We know the front end of a flow state, there's a four-stage cycle that leads into flow. Part of it is a, is a struggle phase. It's built in. So in flow work and peak performance, flexation is often a sign you're moving in the right direction. So I always say, and we say this in Art Impossible, one of the things that's very tricky about peak performance is your emotions don't always mean what you think they mean. And for most people, frustration is a sign that you're doing something wrong. Stop. And in peak performance, Though it has to be handled in the right way, it's actually a sign you're moving in the right direction because the brain needs to be overloaded in a sense before it can have the the breakthrough most people are looking for. In fact, I've been working on the neurobiology of flow a lot and what happens at state onset, like the first two seconds of flow as you drop in. And there's more and more proof, though it's still open question, there's more and more proof that you actually have to trigger the fight response to get into flow, even if it's only for a second, right? But we all know this, like athletes know this instinctively, especially action sport athletes. If you think about paddling into a wave, right? The moment of like push paddling into the wave and pushing your feet, that is a moment of absolute aggression to get you, right? Windsurfing, like when you, or kiting, when you're hooking into your harness and catch, that's so much like the challenge shows up and you have to lean into that challenge immediately, that seems to be what flow requires. It's because of how it, it trains our focus and what it does to us neurochemically. But uh, that seems to be across the boards. That's sort of a built-in thing. So like learning to kind of negotiate with frustration is really is really important for this work, I think. We never define flow. Would it, like a dorky way, would that be like transient hypofrontality where you're kind of going offline from that? Or like what's the working definition of flow? Flow, I don't have a definition of flow. Science has a definition of flow, which is an optimal state of consciousness where we feel our best and we perform our best. Yeah. And more specifically, it's those moments of rapt attention and total absorption, so focused on the task at hand, everything else just seems to disappear. So action awareness will start to merge. Your sense of self will get a lot quieter. Time will pass strangely. It'll slow down. you get got to freeze for a factor. More often, you know, five hours pass by in like five minutes. And throughout all aspects of performance, mental and physical go through the roof. So flow is this state that sort of evolution shaped us, the state of consciousness designed to help us perform at our best. Right. Has nothing to do with any shamanic, hypnotic ability nonsense. 
just joking. No, it's, I'm not, it's, no. <laughs> but I mean, by the way, like when I say shamanic hypnotic, first of all, hypnosis and, and, and self-hypnosis is a really powerful flow technique. Yeah. And the shamanic stuff, my problem isn't with shamanic traditions. You know what I mean? Like there are people who have, you know, long, deep, interesting shamanic traditions. And I'm interested in the dialogue between those traditions. My problem is the 25-year-old dude from Austin who goes to Burning Man, wears a funny hat and a crystal necklace and calls himself a shaman. Like, yeah, yeah you I want to kill. You are like, <laughs> you know, if one more kid in a funny hat wants to perform a tea ceremony or a cow ceremony or a... <laughs> Like I like if I don't murder a millennial before like I die, it's only because I got money. That's good. I, we'll, we'll we'll wrap up on that. Um, so obviously, grab the art of impossible. Where, where, where should people go from here? StephenCotler.com, my website. As you know, you can go to artofimpossiblebook.com. Everything you you want there, or if you're interested in flow, flowresearchcollective.com. And we have, if you go to the flowresearchcollective.com forward slash flow blocker, free gift to anybody who's listening. We built a diagnostic. It identifies, there's 10 really well-identified major flow blockers. And this is just a diagnostic and says, this is the one that's worse in your life. And this is how you take steps. So if you're interested in more flow in your life, flowresearchcollective forward slash flow blocker, right? If you're interested in harnessing intrinsic motivation, the way we were talking about it, passionrecipe.com will get you there. Another free gift. And remember, nothing says I love you like the art of impossible. I uh, I look forward to I could I could get out of my own way with various different uh, flow hacks. So I'm I, I'm gonna have to check that out. Thank you so much for doing this, man. I always so greatly appreciate our conversation. It's always good to see you. Yeah, it's been a couple of years. Last time I was in Boulder, Colorado. But anywho, it's great seeing you again. I'm glad that you're well. I hope you're on a beautiful day. I look forward to seeing you next time. Thanks for doing this, man. Thanks, man. Bye-bye. See you, Hope you all devoured that conversation. Steven is always a hoot to chat with, and he's just got so much dang applicable information on how to make our lives better. So I appreciate him very much. If you enjoyed this conversation, feel free to share it with your friends, your family, your grandma, whoever could use a little bit more flow in their life. And you could share it on the Instagram. Be like, advice. you can tag me in a line podcast. And if you all have resistance bands in your lives, you have the strength kit, you've got the align band, you've got just resistance bands of your own. We created a complete user's guide on how to integrate more fitness, mobility, calisthenics, all of the things, progression, exercise, in order to get your body fit using nothing more than a few stretchy bands. So you can jump over to alignpodcast.com slash courses if you're interested in getting your body in shape, mobilizing your, your hips and your ankles and your knees and your spine and your neck, feeling more spacious in your body, feeling more flexible, feeling stronger, if that's something that is valuable to you and you want to be able to travel, have a simplistic tool that has many purposes, jump over there and learn how the heck to use them at alignpodcast.com courses. Okay, okay, that's it. That's all. I will be looking forward to whispering into your ear holes next week. Bye.